Welcome to How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships from True Story FM. Today, systemic toaster inequality. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm Seth Nelson. As always, I'm here with my good friend, Pete Wright. There's nothing different in the law when it comes to divorcing a white couple compared to a black couple. But the law is only part of the story. Mike Easterling is co-host of Just Being Brothers and a retired television producer. He's twice divorced, father of two, grandfather of two, and he joins us today to talk about the cultural and societal stigma attached to divorce in the black community. Mike, welcome to the toaster. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Mike, you're a, a fascinating guy. I'm uh, excited to talk to you about this. You we, you came to us, um, you, you're co-host, co-founder of the Just Being Brothers podcast, which is a thing you seem to have landed on after an e- extraordinary career in television and, uh, a- and uh, your own history of divorce. And so we, we want to talk about a couple of things in the context of this conversation with you. The first is, um, you know, as, as you have been saying yourself, you're an old dude, and there's this whole angle of gray divorce uh, and and how that has impacted you. And we've talked about gray divorce a little while back on the show. It's been a long time. I'm curious to get your perspective. And the other is uh, black divorce. What what role does race play in divorce for you as a guy divorced twice? Uh, we want to talk about that experience and uh, and see how because you know we know the law is is just one side of the divorce equation the culture community friends family uh, you know we we want to talk about that so um, why don't we start with a little bit of your divorce history is that is that a good place to start <laughs> history makes it sound like it's been ongoing for yeah, yeah right <laughs> <laughs> you have a have a forty five year career in divorce. <laughs> I'd rather call them my two divorces, but but the other first one, let me tell you, the first one probably has very little to do with race, but it probably has some. And that is, I was just too darn young to be married to anyone of any color at any time at 24 years old, going on 20. Um, some of that may have some racial over, uh, underpinnings because certainly... Uh, I had two great parents, but maybe they didn't have the best marriage. So, you know, you you model what you see. We didn't have beers, people throwing stuff at each other and the cops coming to the door. But there's a special subliminal kind of thing that goes along in a strong marriage. That as I look back now as an adult, just didn't have that wasn't there to model. So that in that case, being in my by the time it happened, like early married eight years, so in my 30s. Uh, that marriage was just a marriage that shouldn't have been. Uh, fast forward, like, I guess about eight or nine years from there. Yeah, 88, seven years from there. And I was married again and stayed married for 28 years. That one, I would say, was a marriage that was good until it was bad. And then it was uh, then it was uh, over. And I think it depended. A lot of it came down to a couple of things. Not for me particularly, but the biggest thing is stress on African-American men in the country day to day. Okay. There are things that we go through that are invisible to other people. Even an educated person like me, educated person like some of my friends, they're invisible. Things like, and there's stresses, however. You know, you you ask yourself, why is high blood pressure high in African-American men, but not in African men? What's up with that? The stress of being an African-American. That's why when they come here, their blood pressure goes up. 
Because once you leave Africa, you become an African-American. When you're in Africa, you're, you're, on, you're on your own country. Okay, even with the stresses that there may be there. But here it's different. And so that starts there. It also, that wasn't my case. Mine was basically um, the other thing, which is a lot of women, and, and I had a wonderful wife, both of them, but a lot of women find themselves also growing up in households where there's only um, the mom. Dad is gone. So mom becomes dad and mom. Those women sometimes say, well, say, I'm going to make sure I have a man who's going to be in my house and help me raise my kids, et cetera. But then when they, and they imagine that they know what a strong man looks like, okay, but they really don't, okay? And so when someone does come and they're kind of strong, okay, that can sometimes be off-putting. I want to, I, I got to dig into that a little bit. What does it mean, uh, a strong man? What is that sort of stereotype? Yeah, you know, somebody who stays with his family, who does the right thing, who isn't in and out of jail, who every day tries to progress and be better for himself and for the family. Uh, not lazy, okay, and, and doesn't fit those stereotypes. On the other hand, is also able to step back, and here's where it gets tough, and let, uh, especially if you have an educated wife or ambitious wife, let that person shine also. And sometimes that doesn't happen. African, and I just looked at some stats, African-American women are more apt to marry below their status because due to everything from incarceration to who, who knows what, uh, lack of education, there aren't a lot of men. There, there are less men that are available. Okay, And just because somebody has the same academic background as you do doesn't mean that that's the person for you. Okay, but you we usually start with commonalities. So, Mike, let me try to understand what you're saying. I want to make sure I'm understanding this right. Sure. You have an educated African American woman, woman goes to college, gets a degree in whatever that might be, advanced degree potentially, but inherently based on numerous societal and historical reasons. But currently today, there would be less African American men with that same education. Yes. And therefore, if that person, that woman, wants to marry someone from the African-American community, just mathematically, statistically, there's less men to choose from. Of certain status, yes. Right. Because so you can name this, like you said, the society, we just call them the societal reasons. We're not here to break that down today. Okay. Coming after that, then a man sometimes knows he's going into, uh, and this isn't every case, but a man knows he's going into a relationship where he's like, sometimes he's not the, the main breadwinner. She is. Right away, that's a little kick in, in the old Nazis. I got a quick story on that. My father was a university professor, PhD in psychology, taught industrial organization psychology, not a clinician, but and in the early 70s or so, my mom went to him and it was probably around 76. No, actually earlier than that, like 73, I guess, or earlier and said, I want to go to law school. And said to my dad, are you going to be okay if one day I make more money than you? And my father says, am I going to be okay with it? I'm counting on it. <laughs> so they yeah, had right. a different view on that, right? But yeah, that aggressive is and early in the seventies, though, in right? the early seventies, right? Yeah, that's when the first began. Yeah. yeah. So, so that is not attributable, as Pete, I think, was about to say, to the African American community. It's it's our society is historically the men were the breadwinners. That's certainly changing. Exactly. But when you get a situation where that, when you, it's harder for you to be the breadwinner, 
it's harder for you to advance along the road to success toward the breadwinner. When you're trying, when you're getting passed over for promotions in your wife because of the old double minority thing, especially back in the eighties and nineties, it's getting promotion because now we have minority vice president, we have a female vice president. That begins to eat away at your ego. Okay. And especially when you know it's not you, it's something else. Now it's not always something else. Like we say, everything's not racial. Sometimes you're just not that good, except to take it or leave it. We know the difference. You know, I've been I've been passed over for it for uh jobs and I've gotten jobs and I've been and I've, I haven't been passed over. I think I've been passed over once. The other times there were better people than me. Period. I knew that I knew the people. They were white people, but in my mind, they were better. I, I was pleased to compete, but I kind of knew that they had the upper hand. But when you feel that you're always being passed over and you've got these other stresses of just walking down the street, uh, something could be could happen to you. That's, but by people who are supposed to protect you, uh, that's something you guys probably never feel. Yeah, I, I I think that's the that's the point, right? It's like at at some point there's this vicious cycle of the the experience, the black experience of dealing with the black experience, dealing with with, and that that's kind of why I want to go into this into this conversation with your perspective on dealing with the law. You know, and we're not necessarily talking about, you know, the other incredibly important issues going on in society right now, police violence and dealing with all of those issues. We're just talking about dealing with the law as a black couple getting a divorce. Are there negative stereotypes that I would never have to consider? Are there there negative impressions of the divorce process that I would never see because of what color I am? Not, you know what? Not that I know of, to be straight. That, that's one place that once it's divorce time, it's your lawyer. Now, the first time my brother, my lawyer was a college uh, baseball teammate. Second time I had a white lawyer um, that knew from Greater Baltimore Association um, Leadership Baltimore. And basically it came down to the same thing. I don't in the community. However, there was a time when that was totally frowned upon. Divorce. Um, you know, you stay, you stay, you, you know, you, you marry, you stay it out, you stick it out. Um, not just for the kids, you stick it out totally. If you don't, you're weak, you're not a man. Because it's a moral weakness, right? It's a moral weakness, okay? Um, especially at the time when we as a people were more were more closely aligned with the church. The civil rights movement came out of the church. Everything came out of the church. Education came out of the church. Many of the African-American colleges, HBCU, of which I'm a proud HBCU grad of Howard University, but some of the smaller ones, came out of the church working with both black and white people. And so, Mike, to understand this, because so much of the historical African experience and movements were surrounded by faith, and from the faith movements, then that makes divorce even harder. And we've talked on this show, Pete, about what happens with when divorce couples are very active in their church. They're, they're, our guests were saying, look, we're kind of a special class or a lower class. They won't talk about divorce, even though we're here in the church. And those are people that have been remarried. And Mike, you're saying people would stay together because of the societal pressures of the church. In the African-American community, yes. Does that then perpetuate the experience of those children who model, as you say, what they see and then maybe they're going to end up in a marriage that isn't necessarily what's best. That can be. But, you know, educate me. And we'll talk about education. Education frees you from that. OK, as people left, let's go back from the 70s to the 80s 
as the uh, opportunities for education expanded, uh, walls were broken down, people began to experience a, a new America in which divorce itself began to be like, well, maybe that's not such a bad thing. We began to see movie stars begin to get, get divorced, okay? The fact that um, someone was, you know, couldn't do it anymore, we just can't do it anymore. People are like, maybe that's okay. And of course, that comes to the Black community. Really releasing the Black man from some of the pressure that he was feeling and giving the Black woman a chance to maybe start anew. Sometimes people start into marriages, and this is Black and white, but I'm certainly in the Black community, uh, because there's a baby on the way. Not because there's any love there. Not because there's any education. Oh, I hear it all the time. And and this is what the kids say. Mike, they say this. They'll say, I stayed married for the kids. And when those children get to be adults, they'll tell their now adult parent, right? They're an adult talking to an adult parent. I wish you would have done it sooner. We all knew you guys were ha- unhappy. We all knew that there was fighting in the house. Like, what were you guys, you know, like they stayed you for the wrong reasons. <laughs> right. You cannot hide. They've been studying you from the day they were born. You can't hide. And my son didn't know. And we did the same thing. Uh, first of all, it was, good. It, was, it was touch and go, but it was good. Um, got crazy once he left the house. Okay. This has nothing to do with black or white. But we put, you know, he we were late parents of my second son. I was 42 when he was born. So late parents, we put all our love into him. And when he went off to school and he's doing very well, um, we were like, okay, so who are you again? Which I don't, do I know you? That's right. That happens a lot in all couples, right? When, when, when there's huge changes uh, in the life, that's when things happen. The, and the other thing about African-American divorce is um, it's so much of what happens at the lower level. No money. Okay. To make things right. Can't take a loving vacation. There's nothing. And all that does is make people, the man feel worse and worse. And one person finally decides, I can't take this and I'm gone, which makes the man feel even worse. And so I think it, the biggest part comes from the stress on the African-American male more than anything else. Number one, the stress on the African-American male day to day. Even a guy like me, I've never been arrested, never been arrested, speeding tickets and those things that are, you know, but I still feel that man, when I step out, God, I hope nobody thinks that I'm doing this, saying this. It's kind of hard to explain. But it's like if you guys were all of a sudden there was a boogeyman behind you all the time in your work, in your driving, in your education, in your play, in your marriage. There's always something that makes you feel like, huh? Looking over your shoulder. Is there something behind me? Is somebody watching me? Somebody waiting for me? And so that pressure is there. You go to the place where you should get away from that home. If you've got a wife that uh, works at a higher level, um, Sometimes that makes you feel a little bit inferior. How was your day? Well, mine was the same old thing. How was yours? Hey, we did this. We did this. The president of the university came down and gave me an award. I think I'm going to be up for promotion. And you're like doing the same old thing. You're driving a bus. Nothing wrong with that. But compared to your wife, maybe who works as an administrator at a hospital. Okay. That's stressful. That's stressful for anybody, but more stressful for, for people of color because they know their opportunities to improve that are less. Yeah, it's interesting you said too about the financial disparity sometimes because unlike in a criminal case where the state's required to give you a defense attorney, a public defender, there's no requirement for the state to give you anything in a civil case, which is what divorce falls under. Yes. And the same issues in a lower socioeconomic divorce are there for a high wage earner in higher um, status. 
But the problem is access to the courts. And I'm going to just tell it like it is here, Pete. It's because the lawyers are so expensive. Sure. That's true. So I'll have some of the exact same legal issues in a case that we're arguing over $10,000 or a different case arguing about $10 million. The same issues, the same concepts, relatively the same fact patterns. And people could say, well, how could that be 10 grand versus 10 million? Well, if we're talking about how finances were handled on a house and the equity in one house is 10,000 and the equity in the other house is 10 million, that's how you get there, right? But it's not viable or good business to pay lawyers to argue over 10 grand where it might be worth it arguing over 10 million because of the cost of doing business. Right. Cost of doing business is the same. That's right. Exactly. But the problem is that 10,000 is all the money in the world to that couple. Right? And they want you to fight with them, for them, excuse me. And they want to bring that same legal issue. And you look at them and say, it's not enough to fight about. But to them, it's their hard-earned money. It, it's it hits to what I think Mike is talking about. Like, hey, just because I don't have enough or, or enough to pay, like, it's still me. And, and maybe it beats them down that their issue isn't worth arguing about because of the finances where the higher socioeconomic class is. And they really don't get access to courts then. You exactly. I know when I got divorced. Access to access to funds. And, it, and there's another thing that, and, we, and this will probably dovetail into uh, gray divorce. And, and that is the old thing in addition. And this goes back to when the, I said the, the uh, church was involved and religion was involved. And there's a thing, I don't know about other communities, but in our community, you're like, man, when you look at the cost of hiring a Seth Nelson or anybody else, you go like, it's cheaper to keep her. Oh, I've heard that saying. Yep. But that's where you sometimes end up when somebody goes out on a stretcher because of that stress. And people go, man, why didn't you just walk away? Dude, why you? God, I got four kids, man. I'm making seventeen fifty over at Armco Steel. She's staying home with the kids. Okay, I'm trying to get this stuff done with thirty five, forty thousand dollars. I can't just walk away on my kids. That's right. Okay, so when the divorce comes with people like that, it's because it's the best thing. It's not the next step would be something that's maybe not good. Why? Why can't you just handle that? I have other stresses. Stresses that I have. Outside, when I come home, I have stresses that I have inside that I wish I could explain to you guys what it felt like. But like I said, the best way I can say it is there's just a boogeyman. And even when the boogeyman is not there, guys, we, and I'm not going to just say lower income black people, even when it's not there, we feel it. Seth, according to the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, about 10% of children live with a parent with an alcohol use disorder. That's got to... That's got to make your skin crawl. It certainly does. And it's something that comes up a lot in custody cases. But we've got good news about that. Whether you're the one who is absolutely positively sure that your spouse suffers from alcoholism or you're the spouse that you say, I am not an alcoholic. I can be sober anytime I want. We can stop that. He said, she said scenario by using Soberlink. 
Soberlink is fantastic and a, a great partner to us on this show. It, it is Soberlink, the device itself is real-time alcohol monitoring. It's a device that has a facial recognition camera on it and you blow into it and it sends real-time data about your use of alcohol uh, to the people who need to know, your legal support, your spouse, to know that when it's time for carpools, when it's time for handoffs, anytime you're going to get behind the wheel with your child, that you are safe to drive. And Seth, I actually have a story. This is a new story for you because we always talk about the the people, the spouse who's accused of having an alcohol abuse disorder or somebody who is accusing an an alcohol abuse abuse disorder. I actually, uh, just last week, I have a dear friend who is recovering and said that they used a tool just like this, unfortunately not brand Soberlink, but a, a tool just like this that helped them get clean, right? It helped them remember whenever they had to blow in that device that they were doing it for their kids. And I think that's yet another reason to to really take this stuff to heart. You're doing it for the kids. Absolutely. We talk about Soberlink as being an independent third-party verification in real time that courts love. That's just because we're talking about the divorce world here. Soberlink is certainly used to help people maintain their sobriety. So if you have an issue, get to Soberlink. Do the hard work. It's hard work every day for the rest of your life. Spend quality time with yourself and with your kids. Soberlink, we really appreciate you sponsoring this show. Sign up and receive $50 off your device just by going to Soberlink.com slash toaster. Mike, the thing I've learned the most that I've never thought of, what I've learned from you today, is the stresses on the African-American community based on the society that we are living in doesn't just go away when you get home and you're within the four walls of your home. There's the stresses there because to your point, I thought, okay, you're in your home, you're having a meal. Maybe those stresses aren't there, but, but like I always tell Pete, and we've heard it, I tell people live your life, not your divorce, but your divorce creeps in every day those stressors are still with you even when you're home within safe within your four walls and that then negatively impacts that relationship the other reason that drives it guys is that a lot of us of us have a um, taboo a cultural taboo against getting help getting counseling okay that's an we're getting better as a race about that but when somebody i'll give you the typical we laugh out of those of us who and moved along as far as our sophistication in that area. But what someone would say to you, say to me, Mike, back in the day, you need to go talk to somebody. Man, I ain't crazy. Man, I don't need no help. Don't tell me I need help. Don't give me more stuff. You're already telling me I'm inferior out here on the job. I got to be careful when I'm driving down the street. I want, if I approach a policeman to help me, he might think that I'm the villain. We've seen cops come to break up fights. And who's the first guy they grab? And people are going, no, it's not him. It's that kid. And the cops are locking up. That's every day. Okay. So now you come in and you tell me now I need somebody else. You're telling me I'm weak again. I'm not going for it. I'd rather walk away. You know, that attacks my manhood. We're, we're past that, but not way past it. I, I think that's a really interesting one. And I, you know, when you talk about sort of like, uh, and let's just say the personal cultural recovery that comes after divorce when and and you talk you were married eight years your first time and then even with all of the cultural baggage even with the 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 boogeyman that's sitting on your shoulder you were ready to get married again 
And given everything you're talking about here, like, I, I can't help but think, why was marriage, a second marriage, a, a good option, given everything that stands a- against you? And you always, well, you should talk about, talk about these things. And even though one of the reasons I'm not married is because I didn't have a real communicative wife. In the beginning, we were, like most young people. But we talk about, what about this? What about that in society? What about our kids? Where are we going to live? We, I was married most of my time in Baltimore when I was work, working in TV there. And we knew we were not going to be living in Baltimore because schools become important. Okay, well, now we got to go to a place where there's better schools, which is usually the, the better neighborhoods, which are usually predominantly white because of the things we talked about beginning, opportunity, et cetera generational wealth, et cetera. Most of us don't have generational wealth. Okay, so we talk about those things. But the other thing is, the society is set up for two. Okay? This is, I mean, I've been divorced six, eight years, and it's tough out here for an old guy by himself. Society is set up for two people from the tax base, et cetera. So it's a smart thing to do. Just because you're, you know, you're in a situation where you have more challenges doesn't mean that you won't take that challenge. Being, having to do more to get the same thing having to protect yourself more than other people, by the time you're 25, 30, 40 years old, that's nothing special. That's life. That's been your life since you're like four years old. Like when the little girl told me at age four, you can't come to my birthday party because you're colored. Four years old. Not in Memphis, not in Raleigh, not in Mobile, Brooklyn, New York. Brooklyn, New York. Which I I knew I was brown, but I I had to go ask my mom, why did, why did that mean I couldn't go to the birthday party? So at four years old, I had to be, my mom had to sit me down and say, this is how life is and this is how life's going to be. Four years old. Didn't even go to school. I wasn't even in school yet, but I was learning about race because my parents had to teach me that. Just like you have to teach your kid to look both ways before they cross the street. And some people say, ah, you're teaching your kid to hate white people. No, we're just teaching my kid, kids to know what could happen. And I'm teaching my kids to hate cars. Because I'm telling them to look both ways before they cross. I'm not teaching them to hate cars. Just how to look out for the street. How do you unravel that in your head, man? Like, how do you unravel that to just get help for yourself enough to be able to recover from divorce, recover from the the stereotypes and the bias to be able to to be able to you know show strength and 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 live your life? Some people never do. You saw the guy at Michigan State. You know, um, something that black people, we used to say, we never do mass killings. We was, we were so proud of that. If we kill somebody, somebody we know. Okay. We got a grudge with them, but now we're walking into places and just shooting up people. It's that stress, whatever stress is on the guy who killed those kids in Buffalo, the guy who killed the people, uh, in, I think in Atlanta, ours is just multiplied. Uh, how do you do it? That's a great question, Pete. <clears throat> Friends who are very similar. Okay. Friends who've gone through, through, through divorce, friends who um, have the same stresses. Okay. We just talk to one another. People say, why do we, there's a book called, why are all the black kids sitting at the, sitting together at the lunch table? Some, some title like that. And I did a, I did, I, I, I and after I stopped doing TV, I did some speaking with Fred Pryor and I also do some speaking myself on DEI. And that question is because it's, it's a chance for them to, stop this charade that they have to have to exist if they're not in an all-black school and be themselves. And so that's why sometimes we have parties and stuff and people go, how do you guys party so much? The stuff of life is on you. That's our outlet. And so we talk about this. We talk about the next. This happened to me. That happened to me. Sometimes it's so silly we laugh at it. 
Other times, you know, it makes people angry. But that's just our lives. The, these things are just our lives. And so the same as divorces or for, for anybody else, it's tougher. Also, because women feel this also. We keep talking about the men, but women also feel these same stresses, okay? Walk into a place with a big purse, you must be stealing. Yeah, but Mike, I want to go back to something on this because I think it's vitally important. We've talked a lot of mental health professionals here. Am I understanding you correctly? In the African-American community, there's a stigma about getting help or going to get mental health treatment that is starting to get eroded away. Yes. My son, um, 33 years old, uh, he goes to a therapist and he's got no real problems. He said, Dad, I just go to him and talk to him. Right, go get a checkup. I'm a black guy in corporate America and uh, and I tell him I need to talk. Good for him. He didn't get that from me because I never talked to anybody. I was that ignorant or uninformed or sucked up in my culture. But like, I ain't talking to nobody, man. Many times those guys are white people, all right? Not as much now, but back when I was younger, I ain't talking to a white dude about my business, man. Okay? You just wouldn't do it. What, what, what would they know? There are more young African-American therapists now and counselors for people to talk to. And that, to me, I think is one reason that that's losing. Not to mention that we're more educated than we were a generation ago, two generations ago. And we realize there's nothing wrong with seeing somebody any more than there's something wrong with seeing somebody about a physical illness. The mind also can get out of, out of things as well. But, it, you know, for us, it was all, if you go to see anybody about anything, you must be crazy. You can't handle your own business. You need somebody to tell you about how to, I don't need anybody to tell me how to run my marriage. Yes, you do. You just don't want to admit it. Yes, you do. We just not gotten to that point where we go, yeah, yeah, you know, you're right, I do. Other than Pete, I don't know anyone that needs to, I, everyone I where know. Where are you going with this? I, it's a compliment. Other than okay. Pete. All right. Other than Pete, <laughs> everybody I know needs to know how to communicate better. Pete's a fabulous communicator. Oh, thank you, Seth. That's good, man. I got uh, one more question before we get to wrapping up, Mike. I, you know, you, you're a uh, father of two, grandfather of two. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Soon to be three. You, soon to be three. Congratulations. Yeah. And by that, he means a grandchild, not another father, Pete. I want to be very <laughs> clear about that. <laughs> See, the, the lawyer is going to also make sure everything very That's true. right. Oh, every day, if I had a bell, Mike. Absolutely, I... <laughs> man. Don't throw me into that train again. Even though I got two great guys. My sons, thank you, Lord. Two great guys, never incarcerated, never easy with the police, the baby boys, a West Point grad. I'm, I'm one of those guys who beat that, those things we're talking about. Well, that's what I want. That's what I'm curious about. Like any like as you think about what like have you reflected on the lessons that you've learned in in watching your kids that have been passed on about how you deal with relationships, marriage relationships, partner relationships and and what they've learned from you? That whole it takes a village thing is really true. I had great friends, fraternity brothers, college friends that my sons also were around. He had, he had like five or six uncles that were not my brothers. You know, Uncle Bob, Uncle John, Uncle Ron, but they were part of that because you can't pick, people say you can't pick your family, but you can pick your family. You just can't pick your relatives. In, in fact, you should pick your family, especially because you can't pick your relatives. Right. And I've got <laughs> relatives that aren't really close to me as my family. I have people that are not my relatives that are real close to my family. So we had those good, positive people. Uh, it was like, talk to us about anything. Okay. And so they, and I also, it's hard to say those folks there, you need to stay away from those people. They, they got the, they have a wrong message. Yeah, but they, you know, they black people too, Dad. They're like, mm. no, I don't like the message. I don't when I talk to their mom and dad. So we put our kids on a straight and narrow. I'm a military kid. And my dad was a military guy. So excuses, no. 
racism. We ever accused any of the teachers that I went to Catholic school. We ever accused sister of doing something that we thought was about color. And mom went up to the school and it wasn't. Then I need to probably find myself someplace else to live because it's going to be. So we weren't allowed to make those excuses. We were told to work around those. Lately, to get, we do want to go to gray divorce real quickly. It's um, someone asked me, why are you getting divorced at 63? That's a long time. You're 63 years old. My answer was, I don't know how long I'm going to live. I have no idea how long I'm going to live. But I give it a day, a week, or a year. I want it to be great. I also love, and though maybe not in love anymore with my wife, I don't want her, and she's the mother of my child. I don't want her to have a miserable life. And if she does, have it with somebody besides me. People are living longer. Okay. Um, you know, I'm on the dating site, 70 year olds, 75 years old. This girlfriend looking good still. We're living longer. We're healthy longer. Okay. And there's a lot of life left to live. Just because somebody was married for 50 years, I was married for 50 years. I guarantee all 40 were not wonderful. They had to push through five or 10 years of maybe, man, I don't know what I'm doing here, but I'm going to hang in. Depending on your own self-image and how you feel about your life, as a black man especially, that's all I can speak of, that may make a decision whether you stay or go. And you see, you see more gray divorce than just in general than when you started your career? Oh, yeah. We've talked about gray divorce on, on the show. We, I, I'm a, kind of a stats guy and a numbers guy, so we, we have our own internal stats and we have more gray divorces. It's not uncommon. It's just not spoken about as much, usually because people always want to hear the dirt and talk about fighting over the kids. A lot of gray divorces, as you pointed out, the kids are out of the house. But but a lot of what you said rings true um, with a lot of uh, my friends and practitioners that I talk to about gray divorce. Exactly what you said is, we've come this far. I don't know how much longer I have on this earth. And and I wanna I wanna do something different with my life right now. That's what they do. That was a generation ago, and I can look by tell by pictures. You guys are all at least twenty years younger than I am. Pretty close generation ago, guys. No, you'd have been considered, considered weak. You stay there. That oh, you make you bed, you sleep and sleep in it. That is the dumbest thing. That then it wasn't. But as we look back more, that is the who who continues who makes a mistake and says I'm going to pay for it by wallowing in it. When there is an option, as my first divorce lawyer told me, uh, I remember I was there early. He was there early. We were waiting. And I was sort of bemoaning. I was a little bit ashamed of it, you know. And he said, young man, that is why they put erasers on pencils. I'll never forget that guy. Oh, that needs to be on a shirt. Oh, man. He said, people make mistakes. If you make a mistake in the school you decide to go to, you change schools. Make a mistake in the job that you don't particularly like, you change jobs. Like your neighborhood, when you move. But when it comes to something as important as who you live the rest of your life with, it's convoluted. Not to cut into your money, Seth. No, man. Mike, I'm good. I'm good. But I'm telling you this. I am happily engaged, and I am going to give my fiance a pen. (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations on your engagement. (laughs) Thank you. Hey, on that note, I got to tell you, Mike, uh, you're fantastic, man. Thank you for coming and hanging out with us and and giving us a little bit of your wisdom. I know what you've, I I am a a happy subscriber to your show. Tell, just give people the short and skinny of of what your, uh, what your podcast is all about. Just being brothers is really 
one of those Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland, hey, let's have a podcast, came out of the fact that for 70 years, I've been talking to this guy, names, we're both big personality guys, okay, his is a little bit bigger than mine, I say, you know, he's, uh, but we're two guys who just talk about anything, as brothers would do, you guys are just listening in on a couple of guys talking, sometimes we know what we're talking about, sometimes we're not, sometimes it's strictly opinion. Uh, we talk about anything. It's more entertainment. I'm not going to help you lose 30 pounds in 30 days. I'm not going to help you drop your, increase your net bottom line by, we're not doing that. Every now and then, you, you, while you're driving along, you can just put us on, get, get good conversation and get some laughter along the way. We never make fun of things that are serious. Got one coming up on guilt and shame. Those things, even though we, we maybe jab each other at, jab at each other because we're brothers, uh, we take those topics very seriously. But we're just a couple of guys trying to entertain people and give them something else to listen to and also approach as many um, topics as we can from the black perspective with a different perspective. Everything isn't racism. Everything's, everybody's not out to get you. Look at things, you know, more than in a, we as black people, because we sort of live as a group, you know, one person does something screwy, that's all of them. Okay. If one person does something great, that's only one of them. Okay. So we live as a group, we're, we're socialized as a group. So we want to make sure that we don't all have that mob think that everything was, you know, there was a, I'll be real quick. So we want to talk about things differently. And we uh, want to do it with a lot of fun and like brothers do. So you hear me take shots at him. He'll take shots at me. I tell him he's a good looking one. I'm the smart one. Okay. Those kind of things that we do. Well, Mike, I know that. Let me tell you, when I started a podcast, my dad said, Boy, you got a face for a podcast. Son. <laughs> so I'm with you. <laughs> we appreciate you coming on. Yeah, we sure do, Mike. Thank you so much. And I hope I've been good for you. Oh, you've been great, man. This is this is fantastic. All the best to you. Best on your podcast. We'll put the link in the show notes. And now we got to turn it to listener questions. Listener questions, Seth. We got uh, we got a listener question. This one comes from Cass. Cass says, you've talked about conflict check on the show, but are there any situations when you would work with someone who has been in touch with my ex? I love an attorney in my area, but I think my ex has already reached out. He went with a different attorney. So does that mean it's fair game for this other attorney to work with me? Anything I can say to make that easier for this new attorney to say yes to me? What do you think? Nope. <laughs> Ouch. That was so fast. It's like you didn't even have to think about it. I wish... I wish it was different. So in Florida, check your local jurisdiction. But once I talk to a potential client, I am conflicted out of that case. Wow. Because the attorney-client relationship starts when the client believes it does. When the client believes it does. That's right. So here's what they teach you in law school. Guy runs into your office covered in blood, holding a knife, okay? Mm -hmm. And he says, I killed him, but it was self-defense. And you look up from your desk and you say, I'm a real estate lawyer. Okay. And now you get called to testify saying, what did he say? Did he say he did it? And it's attorney-client privilege. Really? Yep, if he knows you're a lawyer, he comes in, he goes, are you a lawyer? Yes, I killed him. Boom. If he believes 
that there was an attorney-client relationship at that moment in time. Yeah. Then there was one. Man. And so that is why it's so critical. I get calls all the time. Can you meet with me and my spouse? We got all basically worked out. We want someone to work with both of us. We don't want to quote unquote lawyer up. And I said, I wish I could. I can't. I am restricted by the Florida bar rules where it's an inherent conflict of interest. And therefore, I'm not allowed to do that. Serious about that. They are serious. If you think that your spouse called a lawyer, it's pretty easy to find out because the lawyer won't tell you that they called. You call and you say, I want to talk to the lawyer. They should run a conflict check. And then they'll say, I'm sorry, I can't talk to you. Don't ask them why. We all know why, because there's a conflict. Yeah. Okay. Well, that makes it easy. So, Pete, there is good news. Okay. I know I was pretty emphatic. Emphatic is right. The person that holds the privilege can waive the privilege. Oh, okay. So what you're saying, you could could go to your ex and say, can you let go of this? This listener could go call the lawyer. The lawyer could say, I have a conflict. Then you can go to your former spouse or spouse or whoever the other party is and say, look, we're getting divorced. I called this one lawyer. They said they had a conflict, which my understanding is you talk to them. Do you have any problem with me having them as my lawyer? Would you waive that conflict? And that should be okay, right? They say, yes, you can have them. And what does that look like? They have to call the firm and say, the the spouse has to call the firm and say, I waive my privilege. If I get that phone call, I am blanketing that file. Okay. And when when that person that originally called me that didn't hire me, then gets a lawyer. I'm going disti- to I'm going to disclose. I spoke to them. It's my understanding they're going to waive the privilege. We're going to do a signed document that we're going to file in court. Mm-hmm. Easy enough, <laughs> right? Now, you know me, Pete. I do. I can be a little competitive sometimes. Oh, if that person waives the privilege, you know I'm going to crush them in court because they didn't <laughs> freaking hire me. <laughs> Forget okay. reasonableness. Forget settlement. Right. Let's take them to court. Yeah, that's right. All right. We're going full War of the Roses. I Just get it. I joking. Get it. <laughs> okay. We do have another question. Uh, this comes from Anonymous, and it's a, it's an interesting question, and I, I think also a request. If you've not already covered this on another episode, it would be great to do a whole episode on all the common misconceptions about divorce in Florida. Now, the listener goes on to list out a number of misconceptions that they have heard in their experience about divorce in Florida, and it's a great list of great questions. Tell me, tell me the list real quick. Well, here it is. Here, here are a couple of them. If I buy a car in my name, then it's not marital property, even if I'm married. If I own my own business, I can just stop paying myself to avoid child support. I'm easily going to be able to get sole custody of my kids. I'm entitled to an attorney in my divorce, just like in criminal law and many others, says the listener. So we've got this started this list of misconceptions. We could bang them out one by one here, but maybe maybe we should just level this up. Let's do a thing. Yeah. I, we always talk about check your local jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. This is information that people need to know. This is a great question slash suggestion. Yeah. And I know I'm a lawyer. I know I'm not a judge, but request granted. Pete, let's do another show. <sighs> powerful. Powerful. Okay. This is, it, it's happening. It's for real. We're going to get it in the schedule. So uh, uh, listener, you know who you are because you wrote the question. Stand by. And that, as they say, is that. Thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to this show. We sure appreciate you. And and thanks to our fantastic guest, Mike Easterling. I learned a lot. 
and uh, I hope you did too. On behalf of Mike and Seth Nelson, America's favorite divorce attorney, I'm Pete Wright, and we'll catch you next week right here on How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships. Seth Nelson is an attorney with NLG Divorce and Family Law with offices in Tampa, Florida. While we may be discussing family law topics, How to Split a Toaster is not intended to, nor is it providing legal advice. Every situation is different. If you have specific questions regarding your situation, please seek your own legal counsel with an attorney licensed to practice law in your jurisdiction. Pete Wright is not an attorney or employee of NLG Divorce and Family Law. Seth Nelson is licensed to practice law in Florida.